0: I'll be reading Job, chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. Job said, Oh, that I had one to hear me, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary, surely I would carry it on my shoulder, I would bind it on me like a crown, I would give him an account of all my steps, like a prince I would approach him. Job chapter 38 verses 1 to 11 and 25 to 27. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you where I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When it made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swandling band and prescribed bounds for it? and set bars and doors and said, thus, for, thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud ways be stopped. Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives, on the desert which is empty of human life to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground put forth grass.
1: I suspect that for many of us during the last few months of lockdown uh, we have watched perhaps rather more TV than normal. One of the most popular types of TV series are known are those kind of known as courtroom dramas. Uh, I'm sure you know the kind of thing where the action plays out before a judge with the prosecution and defence mounting their cases. And one of the ways of thinking about the book of Job is to read it as a courtroom drama, with various witnesses offering their perspectives, inviting judgment on this central question of who is to blame for Job's suffering. In our first reading for this morning, the short one, from Job chapter 31, we find ourselves in the middle of Job's final speech in the book. This is his kind of summing up of his defence. But as I was preparing this, uh, what wasn't entirely clear to me is the question of who is actually in the dock. Ostensibly, within the world of the narrative, it's Job who is on trial, and he's been mounting his defense against a slew of accusations that he has in some way acted to bring about his own downfall, either through some sin or through his unfaithfulness, or by angering God. And in his summing up speech in his defence, he protests his innocence on all charges. But, and here's the term, if Job is innocent, then maybe it's actually God who is guilty. If humans cannot ultimately be held to account for their own suffering, Maybe they should instead blame God. This is the wider concern, of course, that the book of Job addresses. And in his final speech, if we had time to read it all, we would see how Job talks through his past life before the calamity descended upon him. He goes on in chapter 29 about how good his life was and how good he was. And then, in chapter 30, uh, he, he proceeds to outline what's happened to him in his downfall. And we join him in chapter 31, where we find him taking a long oath, proclaiming his integrity and his innocence. And in the verses we read this morning, we heard him calling on God to answer him, and then. We get to hear God's answer a few chapters later, when God shows up in a voice heard from the howling of the wind. God's response to Job is to take him on a, a whirlwind's tour of creation, with the point being that nature has an integrity, a majesty, an awesomeness all of its own quite apart from any characteristics that humanity might ascribe to it. And in essence, God is here warning Job against what we might call the tendency to anthropomorphism. If you don't know this word, it comes from the bringing together of two ancient Greek words. Anthropos, meaning man or human being, and morphe, meaning form or shape. And it describes the process of attributing human characteristics to something non-human. At an everyday level, many of us do this. From the child who treats their teddy bear as if it had feelings, to the person who finds more meaning in their pet's behaviour than is logically sustainable, to the person who describes the tsunami or the earthquake or the virus as evil. And the book of Job invites us to consider whether an anthropomorphic explanation of suffering is adequate. It's asking us whether it is even legitimate to say that a person's experience of pain or loss is objectively a bad thing. Clearly, from the perspective of the sufferer, from the subjective point of view, It is. If I hurt, from my point of view, that is a bad thing. But Job questions whether a personal perspective is a sufficient basis for passing judgment on the universe. The reality, of course, as Job comes to realize, is that sometimes stuff just happens. Death and suffering are as much a part of nature as life and pleasure. So maybe, maybe there is no explaining it all. But there's another aspect to anthropomorphism that the story of Job raises for its readers. And that is the process of attributing human characteristics to God. The point of the creation stories in the Hebrew Bible is the assertion that humans are made in God's image, And the corollary of this is that humans therefore do not get to make God in their image. And this is where we begin to get our answer to the question of who is really on trial in the courtroom drama of the book of Job. Sure, Job may be innocent on all charges. But does that necessarily mean that someone or something else is correspondingly guilty? If we cannot blame Job for his suffering, can we blame God instead? Many have tried and many do, but God's response to Job gives the lie to this approach. It's no more meaningful to put God in the dock for human suffering than it is to try and declare nature itself guilty. God is not like us. And to treat God as if God were a culpable human is to commit both the error of anthropomorphism and the sin of idolatry, because it is making God in our image. A few years ago, I saw the Reduced Shakespeare Company perform their show, The Complete Word of God, abridged, which covers the entire Bible in an evening. And when they came to the book of Job, They summed up God's response to Job using a paraphrased quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet, a nice kind of crossing over of the Bible and Shakespeare. They paraphrased God's response to Job as this. There are more things in heaven and earth, O Job, than are dreamt of in your philosophy, so shut up. In other words, look, you know nothing. I made everything, so stop your moaning and take it like a man. And here in a nutshell is the problem. If we judge God by our criteria, if we ascribe to God characteristics that are human in origin, if we make God in our image, then we can only conclude that God is cruel and capricious, toying with us like a child torturing an insect. Famously, the great 18th-century revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards used exactly this perspective on God to try and terrify people into repentance in his notorious sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. An anthropomorphized God, God made in our image, becomes an all-powerful control freak who throws tantrums when he doesn't get his own way. And The Book of Job, once again, invites us to reject a false perspective on God. We, like Job, are invited to take a step outside of our own situations. For so much of our lives, our realities are defined by our own experiences of suffering or joy or pain or pleasure. For so much of our lives, we have a subjective perspective And if that is all there is, then life is ultimately random and meaningless. However, God's speech to Job, if read from the perspective of humans being made in the image of God, rather than God in the image of humans, offers a reframing of life. God's words to Job can be heard as an understanding of life defined not by suffering, but rather by the expansive care that God has for the whole of creation. Like Job, we too are invited to realise that the only perspective from which we can ask our questions of the meaning or futility of life is one grounded and founded in God's prior mercy and care for all that exists. To put it simply, if we take breath to complain against God, We can do so only because God has already gifted us the air to breathe. It's an invitation to an alternative perspective on life and suffering. But it's not an answer to the question of who is to blame for them. Job never gets to find out who is to blame, because it becomes clear that that was the wrong question to have been asking in the first place. Instead, Job is gifted to the presence of God in the midst of his suffering, and in that experience of God with him, he finds the strength to live on. And so we find ourselves once again at the cross of Christ, the ultimate moment of God with us in suffering. This is Emmanuel, God with us. The cross does not answer the question of who is to blame for human anguish, it simply and powerfully witnesses to God with us in the midst of it all. So when in our lives we, like Job, experience trauma and grief and sickness and loss, and when we cast around for who is to blame, the book of Job subverts firstly any attempt to blame ourselves. And secondly, it denies any attempt to blame God. Rather, it invites us to listen for God's voice in the tumult of the whirlwind, and to hear God speaking to us of a different perspective on life, founded not on guilt and blame, but on loving embrace. As God enters into our world, into our lives, to participate in our suffering, to embrace us fully, and to draw us through to the newness of life that forever beckons us onwards. This is the Gospel, as we find it in Job.
2: Okay, so we're now going to come to our discussion section, so hopefully Simon's going to make sure that all the panellists are on the screen, so you can see everyone. Um, we. We'll have some panelists, which we will we'll start with. Um, but we'd also like if you are here live with us on the Zoom um, to put your own thoughts questions into the chat box. So the chat box is in the bottom center of the screen if you're on a laptop, if you're on a phone, just kind of cl- click on the screen and a little chat little chat symbol should appear. Um, and I will try and read some of those out during the discussion. Please try and keep them short, because the chat box is really small, so it's hard to read them through. Um, so, lovely panel. If you, I think if you all want to unmute yourselves, but if you want to say something, just pop your hand up, and then I'll be able to see who's, who's coming. So, would anyone like to kick us off?
3: Fifi, put her hand right up. Fifi, go for it. Hello. Um, I just, whilst it's in my head... I wanted to say that I found like um, it feels like Job is like such a pivotal point in the old Testament because before that, there is a lot of like anthropomorphizing God and like saying that he is vengeance and jealous and has preferring one tribe over another and things like that. And um, yeah, I just found that really profound, just like the, if we are anthropomorphizing God and so many people still do this. Like I remember an old church of mine said, you better pray in the morning because God is in your room and he wants to talk to you and you're just ignoring him and all of this stuff. And I'm like, whoa, it's so much bigger than that. Um, so yeah, it was really nice to uh, think of it in this way and that, that Job is like such a turning point in that. thank you I
2: saw Dermot and Tim nodding vigorously when when you were making that comment I don't know if they want to
4: add to that I think um Job is really really helpful on a personal level and it's it's um it's it is wonderful to think of you know what you learn through pain and, and how God is with you in it um and I and what I struggle with when I'm going through it and going through the sermon and thinking of it as an apologetic and what would I say to a sort of an atheist who comes to me and says you know with living with believing god is this suffering you can't and trying to think of an answer for them and so saying well it's the wrong question doesn't seem to be a very good um thing to say back to them but i think on a personal level it's not so new for us
2: absolutely i think that's a question that i get asked that i've been asked a long quite a few times as a christian and in church lots of non-Christians, that's the fir- one of the first questions that they want to have a definitive answer to. Almost as if, if you get an answer, then I'll go, oh, okay, it will make sense now. This doesn't
3: work like that. Yeah. 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 There isn't really like one line we can just give to people to say, actually, it's this. Um, I think the way I'm thinking about it is like, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, the way people are thinking that that because God made the world, that she is still in control, and so she is making all of the decisions and stuff like that. But when we are thinking more about uh, God as Mother Nature, then you know there is always like you know bird attacks rabbit, this kind of thing. You know that's not evil. Like that's just nature. And so. I think we maybe need to think of it more in that kind of way.
2: Yes, mm. yeah. um, I'd just like to bring in a comment that Duncan's put on the chat. Um, it says, very interesting idea from Phoebe, that Job comes at a pivotal point in the Old Testament. That I seem to remember, well, I can hear myself echoing, I'm really i that um, That Simon said it was actually one of the first books of the Bible to be written. So maybe it shows the most fundamental idea of God. Simon, I know you're not a panellist, but I don't know if you want to just have a quick comment on that while I try and turn my phone
1: on. Yeah, Duncan, uh, you're absolutely right. So we don't know the exact dates when these things are written. And there's always a gap between when a book first takes shape and its final form. So we tend to think that most of what we call the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible and the books of the law that come after them, take their final form during the exile, which is relatively late because they're obviously describing stuff that happens a long time before that. Um, The Book of Job is a slightly interesting one. It it probably does predate the exile and uh, is is part of that earlier Jewish tradition. But again, there may be evidence of editing it that comes in later because these things evolve over centuries. Um, But I think that 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 doesn't negate the point Fifi was making because um, the the argument between does God exist in our image or do do we get to define God in our terms or not is still reflected there as a dialogue within the Jewish tradition. And, uh, you know, we get very much in the Deuteronomic tradition this idea that if we displease God, God will punish us and then against that we've got the Book of Job saying that's not how it works actually, the case in point. So I think there's a bit of uh, toing and froing between the two sort of theological streams that the Deuteronomic texts and Job represent. Um, the questions of when they reach their final form is a, is a different, it's slightly different question, but a very interesting point to make.
2: Probably a whole other discussion is how we, so many people still have that idea of God, um, that Job is saying, no, this is not right, but we don't pay enough attention. Um, Dermot. Uh,
5: Thank you, Helen. Yes, I had had a couple of thoughts. As we were listening to the scripture reading and as Simon was speaking on God's uh, response to Job, which I absolutely love, I found myself wondering, was Job satisfied by God's response? And I don't think the text tells us explicitly, but I think he was, because I think what God was communicating to Job, as well as the the panoply of National Geographic wonders of creation, I think um, what Job could hear is that, I am here, I am with you, you are not alone, you are not abandoned. And when we are suffering and when we're in pain, we often can feel abandoned or alone. It's a primal, primal fear. And I think God's response uh, can be reassuring that actually we are not abandoned or we're not alone. And secondly, I was thinking about the problem of pain and the problem of suffering, which of course we've, uh, we all encounter. And I'm reminded that when we cannot feel pain, when we cannot suffer in response to pain, we actually get damaged. The diseases that affect our ability to feel damage us and we can get more hurt. And with Uh, when we are suffering and when we are struggling with stuff, be it physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual, that there is the potential uh, with time to grow through these experiences and that God can bring good out of them, that we can be gifted with greater understanding, greater compassion, greater fellow feeling, uh, greater gratitude. And I just... In some ways, I think that the book points us to the future as well. And I appreciated Simon ending by saying that God is calling us to the future. Uh, and I love the, I love the phrase expansive care. It's the idea, and Jesus talked about life more abundant. It's the idea of being called into a greater way of living. And I, I think that pain and suffering, while they are hateful at the time, undoubtedly can be redeemed and enable us to grow and sometimes we do not grow and do not move until it becomes too painful to stay where we are Mm. And, and then sometimes you just have to go you may not want to go you don't know where you're going and that may mean leaving many comforts many familiar things behind including families countries jobs theology churches all kinds of things but God can call us forward still into a greater way of living and a greater understanding of him and greater love and compassion.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much. And um, that leads nicely into something that Nick has just typed in. But Nick, I was wondering if you'd happy, be happy to, to read that out for people who are here on the phone, so they won't be able to see your
0: comment. Yeah, um, I was just saying that God demands Job to be brave and respond to his question. And Job acknowledges God's unlimited power and admits the limitations to human knowledge. And I think that it helps me with good and evil and how I deal with um, good and evil and, and pain and suffering in my own personal life um, when, I, when I was reading it. You
1: know,
4: I, I'm reminded of one of the passages that to me has had strong impact in my life. Is a passage in 1 Kings Um, where Elijah has run from persecution into the desert and God comes to him and says what are you doing here and Elijah basically says I'm scared for my life and doing everything I can to keep me safe and then he's told to just wait in the cave and then go out and meet the Lord and you have the earthquake and you have the fire and then you have the quiet wind and there is God and I think in some ways, that path, that second passage and God's response um, in, in Job is almost, you have misunderstood the question. You have misunderstood me, Again. and you have tried to put me in a particular image or character or power, and you have misunderstood my role. Mm-hmm. And it... That passage from Kings came in a sermon to me at a particular time in my life where it really struck me. The passage here in Job is coming to a world where, as Frank has indicated, there are some parallels between what's going on with COVID and the persecution of Job, but it's happening to the society jobs are going, Um, work is limited, movement is limited. We can't gather with our friends. We can't draw alongside each other in the physical way that we would otherwise do through hardships. And yet, as Simon indicated, it's that where is God in this is potentially the wrong question to be asking. Where is God in allowing this suffering is definitely the wrong question to be asking. But it's a very natural question to ask. Hence, this this series of sermons through Job has been powerful and useful. So thank you, Simon.
2: Thank you, Matthew. You just mentioned Frank's comment, and I'm just going to read it out for people who are on the phone or just listening along. Um, It says, is the current COVID pandemic an up-to-date version of the story of Job with all of us cast in the role of Joan. So that's what Matthew was referring to there in the chat. I've got lots of chat comments. As always, I'm not going to be able to read them all out. I'm going to pick one from Liz. I'm going to read that one out. Um, I think Liz says, I think there are times when it's helpful to think of God um, as father, or to attribute human characteristics as that is what we as humans understand. But as with so many things in the Bible, it is, as Fifi helpfully put it, so much bigger. We are in trouble if we think that God is just like a human. The really helpful thing for me is that, perhaps as more of a Trinitarian, Jesus shows how God can also be human. Jesus makes all the difference. And let's face it, Job Job is problematic. We have the narrator at the start and the end telling us that it is God in a bet but let's not remember this is the narrator setting up the place for this discussion, not God. So thank you, Liz, for that um, reminder, absolutely. Do any of our panelists wanna carry on or with anything? Would anyone else want to put any questions or comments into the chat and I'll read them out? We've said a lot of profound things already, Dermot. Just
5: again, I was thinking, with the restoration of Job and uh, his external world um, uh, towards the end of the book and and being given things back again or or new ones. Um, I'm reminded of of his internal world that I think uh, his internal world not only was restored but was deepened in terms of his understanding of God and life and uh, the the, the gift of it all. I just think that there were internal graces as well for Job, as well as him being restored uh, externally as well.
2: Thank you. And I think we will leave our discussion section on that note. So many things to think about that. I'm sure we'll discuss in the chat at the end when we've finished our formal time. Um, we're now going to move on to our prayers of intercession, which Matthew is going to lead. If you want to unmute yourself.
4: So we come to a time of prayer, and I'm inspired to an extent today by the uh, prayer on the embroidery you see behind me, which is the serenity prayer um, from Reinhold Nobo. It's a slightly modified version. And that prayer is, God grant us serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can and wisdom to know the difference. So let us pray, Lord. We I want to start with thanks for the um, things over this past week that we have seen change, where we have had courage, or individuals have had courage to act. We thank you for the changes with regards to school meals over the summer for those who would have had free school meals during term time. And the courage of individuals like Marcus Rashford to stand up and to make their point so powerfully. We also thank you for the change in policy with regards to people without recourse to public funds and homelessness and the courage of those amongst Westminster citizens, Bloomsbury included, in standing up and raising that issue and making it known. We pray for comfort in scenarios where we have been unable to make a difference in this past week. I think of the victims of the stabbings in both Reading and Glasgow over this week. These have occurred in communities that Bloomsbury has links with locally. Um, The LGBT community in Reading and the asylum community in Glasgow. And we pray for those that we know who are parts of those communities local to us and the sense of fear that that may bring. Lord, we lift to you those whose health is not as it would ideally be. Those whose normal course of treatment has been interrupted or delayed by the change of hospital working for covid we recognize that this causes worry, stress, for the loved ones and the individuals, and pain for those that are affected. We ask for your healing, your comfort, and your strength as people struggle through until such time as either it becomes warranted to take the risk to, want to continue treatment, or the, the difficulties are reduced and treatment can recommence. And Lord, we ask for wisdom. We ask for wisdom as the country looks to reopening. We've seen um, outbreaks in other countries where reopening is already progressing. We pray for the congregation of the Baptist Church in Germany a couple of weeks ago where they had a substantial outbreak after their first meeting. We pray for our church as we work out what reopening will look like, what we will be able to do or not, whether that will make it a service or not, how we include those who want to meet and those that don't. How we keep those meetings safe and how we maintain community across those that want to meet and don't. And we pray for a sense of common sense within society. As boundaries are relaxed and become more blurred, we pray that people will be able to Find the appropriate restraint in travelling for relaxation and enjoying the weather, or gathering for parties. That it's done with 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 sense and wisdom. But Lord, I was struck earlier this week by a message from a former youth worker at a church I was at and now a vicar elsewhere. That we've lived through lockdown with a hope for reopening. But now we need to acknowledge and look for grace as well. We need to acknowledge that everyone's experience has been different through this period. Some have lost income. Some have had no change to their work except the hazard. Some have had to homeschool in overcrowded accommodation or otherwise. And yet some have been isolated and are looking forward to meeting others again. Therefore, we recognize that people will respond to relaxation differently There will be those that will be joyful to meet and to travel. Yet there'll be those that will continue to fear that they are vulnerable and need to protect and look out with heartbreak at what's happening outside. There's the eagerness or the caution, the relief at working again or the mourning those that have lost and so we close again with the prayer god grant us serenity to accept the things we cannot change courage to change the things we can wisdom to know the difference and grace to accept where others answers are different from ours amen